Every culture has stories about heroes. You know, there's an instinct inside of all humanity that says, I know something's wrong with our world. I know it's broken. But for goodness sakes, we need somebody to come along who's bigger, stronger, smarter, or something to help make things right in a world that is such a mess. In ancient Greek mythology, it was Hercules, Zeus, or Thor. There was King Arthur and Lancelot and the kingdom called Camelot. In our day, we're a little more sophisticated, so we've got Spider-Man, Batman, Wonder Woman, the Green Hornet, X-Men, the Incredible Hulk, the Fantastic Four. How about, I remember, Power Rangers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And when I was growing up, it was Superman. And I love Superman because he was strong. And I think everybody in here knows the liturgy. He was faster than a speeding bullet. He was more powerful than a he was able to leap buildings in a single bound. Oh, you guys are religious. <laughs> he was strong. He was never lonely. He never needed therapy, even though he wore blue tights and a cape underneath his regular clothes. Bullets bounced off his chest, and when bad guys came after him, he always won. I wanted to be him as a kid. I wanted his x-ray vision. I wanted to be able to bend steel in my bare hands. And oh, I wanted that magnificent Superman chest with that great big S on it. I never had that kind of a chest. Maybe I could put a lowercase i on it. But I wanted one. In Jesus' day, Israel was waiting for a Superman, a deliverer a hero. They called him Messiah. And I'm going to show you Messiah was not a religious word. For many centuries, the people of Israel had lived as an oppressed people occupied by a foreign power, and they knew this was not what the kingdom was supposed to look like. There were certain passages in the Old Testament that talked about one who was to come. And by Jesus' time, there had been a lot of writing and thought about who this hero, this Superman, this Messiah figure was to be. There was a fair amount of debate about it, but they agreed on two things, and that was that Messiah meant anointed one, or literally anointed by oil. In Old Testament times, kings were the main ones who were anointed, also priests, sometimes prophets. But most often, anointed one was used to refer to a king. And so, in that culture, the Jews thought primarily in terms of a physical king. They didn't think Messiah would be a divine figure. We sometimes kind of roll that all together in church, but in Jesus' day, understand that the people's expectation of their hero, their Superman, their Messiah was not going to be God in human form. And by the way, Jesus is the only figure that ever claimed to be God. Buddha didn't. Mohammed didn't. No other religious figure did. They could not. They were not. But Jesus declared, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He claimed to be Yahweh, Yeshua. God and the Pharisees went berserk. 
This guy thinks he's God because he was. So in their day, they couldn't relate Messiah to God in the flesh. They could only refer to it culturally as, as a king. And so it wasn't considered blasphemy for somebody to claim to be Messiah. A fair amount of people had done so. But for Israel and for the people of Israel, the proof would be in what happened in that person's movement. And there were two things they believed Messiah would do. Number one, he would defeat Israel's enemies in battle. Number two, he would restore right worship in the temple. When David was anointed king, the very first thing he did was to defeat Goliath and the Philistine army in battle. And the last thing he did was to draw up plans for the magnificent temple of Solomon. So the most prominent messianic title was son of David. Messiah would be the son of David and would do what his ancestor David did. That's what they thought. That's what all the Jewish people were waiting for. So when Jesus was born, Herod the Great had been made ruler over Israel. He never claimed to be Messiah. He was not a descendant of David. And he didn't want any would-be messiahs cropping up while he was king either. So the first thing he did was to defeat a tribe of Israel's enemies in battle. Then he spent enormous sums of money rebuilding their temple. And the title that he asked Caesar to give him was king of the Jews because he wanted to preempt any further messianic movements. Now there's a passage we read this time of the Christmas year where the wise men, the Magi, come from the east, and in Matthew 2, verse 2, they say to Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And uh, it says it disturbed Herod greatly and all Jerusalem with him. Because Herod's thinking, wait a minute, there's already a king of the Jews, and I'm it. So he called together all of the chief priests and teachers of the law, and asked them where the Christ was to be born. Uh, Jesus Christ has been a title for so long on that name. I think most people think Christ is Jesus' last name. It, it is not. Remember, he said, the angel said, thou shalt call his name Jesus. That's his name. Christ is a title. Christ means the anointed one. Okay, so I'm trying to help you see this. Jesus was the name, the anointed one, the Messiah, the hero, the Superman, the deliverer. So it was a title. And the Greek word for Messiah was around a long time before Jesus was born because, again, it wasn't a religious word. People were waiting for the Christ. And when somebody claimed to be the Christ, the people who waited for Messiah watched. If he beat the Romans and ushered in the Messianic age, this would be the real guy. If he did not, if the Romans beat him, then he'd just be another wannabe Messiah. So Jesus grows up in that kind of a world, but he has a different understanding about the kingdom of God than anybody else had. The kingdom was for the whole earth. Life in the presence and power and love of God would now be available to everybody because he had a different understanding of the kingdom than anybody else had. He also had a different understanding of who the kingdom bringer, the Messiah, was to be. So he goes to be anointed, to be baptized by John the Baptist, and it's a significant moment in Jesus' ministry because at the time of his anointing, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and John announces him very interestingly 
John does not say and point to Jesus, behold Messiah, who's going to defeat the Romans and their army and then get on the throne. Instead, Jesus, uh, John points to Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now listen, there were a lot of people in Jesus' day who were trying to claim the title of Messiah. Guess how many people were trying to claim the title Lamb of God? Nobody. What happens to the Lamb of God? Every year at Passover, every family would select a lamb to be sacrificed. It was a way of expressing that something is wrong with humanity, that the human race has made a mess of the world, and we can't make it right. We need forgiveness. We need atonement, and we can't do it. Now, when he's 12 years old, Jesus goes to the temple where they're celebrating Passover, and you can imagine he sees the lamb laid on the altar. He sees its throat cut, its blood shed, and I kind of wonder what he was thinking, behold the Lamb of God. Jesus' message is that our problem isn't just a Roman problem, it's a sin problem, it's everybody's problem. Messiah had come, but He hadn't come just for Israel. He's come for the whole world. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is how He's introduced. And the way Messiah would bring the kingdom to earth is not by power, violence, anger, or conquest, but through love and sacrifice, the way of the cross. I think we all have our stories. We all want a Messiah who's strong, yeah, who'll fix things up, who'll make our circumstances the way we want them to be. But we need a Messiah who's going to fix things in here, in our heart. Our, our real problem is that we want to be our own Messiahs. A psychologist named Milton Rokich wrote a book called The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. That's up in Michigan. And Roich worked for a mental health facility in that city. Three of the patients, he calls them Leon, Clyde, and Joseph, suffered from a Messiah complex. Each one had the delusion that he was the Messiah, and nothing seemed to be working to cure any of them. Rokich had an interesting idea. He decides to put all three of them together in the same unit, in the same little group, kind of like a 12-step program for recovering messiahs. And it was a fascinating conversation. One of them would say, I'm Messiah, the Son of God. I'm here on a mission to save the earth. Rokich, the psychologist, would say, how do you know? Well, the other patient would say, I know because God told me. Then one of the other patients would say, I never told you any such thing. <laughs> and the patients never got much better. Truthfully, we all have a little bit of this problem. That's part of the human condition. A long time ago, the serpent said to Eve, if you taste this fruit, if you defy God, you will be like God. So the only solution is to stop playing Messiah. You know, years ago, a friend of mine who taught a Sunday school class of six-year-old kids reenacted the story of creation. And she told one of the kids named Jonathan that his role was to be God. And his job was to climb up on a ladder, shine a flashlight down at the right time, turn it on, and say, let there be light. That was his job. So she kept working, meanwhile, with the other kids. And there were creeping things and crawly things. And all of a sudden, she felt a tug on her skirt. And she turned around and looked, and it was Jonathan. And he looked up at her, and he said, Mrs. Berg, could you please get somebody else? I'm just getting too crazy to be God today. 
I, I thought that'd be a great prayer to start every day with for us. I'm feeling a little too crazy to be God today. Now, if you look around this room this beautiful morning, what you see is a group of wannabe messiahs in recovery. Every one of us, that's who we are. And if you take nothing else away from this message, take this. You are not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. And if you've never received Him as your Messiah before, you'll have an opportunity at the end of this service today. Jesus comes as Messiah, but not just Messiah. He's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And no one ever had a clue, no one ever had a thought that this Messiah, the Deliverer, the Superman, the Hero, would come as the Lamb of God to be slain. No one thought that. So Jesus has this task as He's teaching to get at least one small group, His little community, to whom He could explain this idea and the nature of Messiah. The kingdom is not the way people thought it was going to be, and Messiah didn't come the way people thought Messiah was going to come. So finally, the time comes. It's just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew the time had come for Him to leave the world and return to the Father. So in John 13, verse 1, it says, having loved His own who were in the world, He now loved them by showing them the full extent of His love. He's going to the cross to show His fullest extent of love. It's the Sunday before Passover, sometimes called the day of Jesus' triumphant entry. But it's also the day of lamb selection. Here's what it said, and the people of Israel knew this back in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 12. On the tenth day of the month, each man is to select a lamb for his own family. The lamb was to be without blemish. It was firstborn. It had to be the best he had. And the lamb was to die on the following Friday. Its life was to be given as a sacrifice. So it's, it's on lamb selection day, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem's full of people, more than double the amount normal because they had all come from everywhere to celebrate Passover. Passover was the time they remembered how they had been oppressed in Egypt how God had delivered them through a man, Moses, and had given them liberty and freedom. Moses had defied Pharaoh and defied the greatest army on the face of the earth. And when they celebrated Passover, in their heart they wanted God to do it again. And a lot of what they wrote about Messiah referred back to Moses because they watched for somebody who would do again what he had done. So Passover was a very dangerous time for Messiah to come to Jerusalem. It was a powder keg. Think about it. A New Testament scholar named Ray Vanderlaan has done a lot of research on this topic. I'm just taking some of it, but he says there's a rabbinic tradition that during the Passover the priest would leave the curtain in the temple open because they thought maybe this time Messiah will come for Passover. And Passover was the single most likely time when somebody who wanted to be the Messiah would try to start a revolution. Because if anybody wanted to start it, this would be the time. And it happened on several occasions. Passover was such a dangerous season, Romans would actually bring in added battalions to beef up security, kind of like Times Square will be on New Year's Eve. 
Then Jesus comes riding into Passover into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's significant too, because there's a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 9, that says, say to the daughter of Zion, the people of Israel, see your king, the anointed one, the Messiah, comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the fold of a donkey. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. Well, the people all knew that book. They were well taught. They all knew exactly what Jesus was doing. It's Lamb Selection Sunday. Jesus is riding in Jerusalem on Passover on a donkey. When the people see it, all heck breaks loose. That's the clean version. It says in Luke 19, verse 37, the whole crowd began to praise God in loud voices. Imagine that at Times Square when over a million people are there. Imagine something like that happening. The implications were they had been coming into Jerusalem quiet because they knew it was dangerous. It was Passover. Then they see this man whom everybody's been talking about, maybe the one whom everybody's been waiting for, riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. This miracle worker, this fearless man, this hero is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and all of a sudden, they start to go crazy. They start waving palm branches. Now, what kind of branches did people wave in front of Jesus on Palm Sunday? No trick question. Oh, you're smart. Palm branches. Now, if you're a traditional Christian, you probably think those palm branches were about love and joy. I'm sorry, they were not. In the previous century before Jesus arrived, Israel had been oppressed under a part of the Greek Empire. The temple in Jerusalem was taken over and dedicated to the Olympian god Zeus. The Israelites were not allowed to offer lambs, which were the prescribed sacrifice, on the altar in the temple. Instead, these pagans sacrificed pigs to the Greek Zeus god on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. It was an unspeakable atrocity. Scrolls of the Torah, for which a devout Jew would die, were burned intolerable. Well, a man rises up, not related to David, not claiming to be Messiah, and his name was Judas the Maccabean. He led a revolt that left Israel relatively free, and somebody from the Maccabean family served as the high priest. And the symbol of Judas' revolt was a palm branch. That's what his followers would wave in Jerusalem. And for a while, with their freedom as a result of the revolution, Israel could mint its own money. They, they wouldn't put a human face on it because that would be a graven image, but they did put the image of a palm branch on their money. So if you want to know how Romans would have felt with Israelites waving palm branches in front of them, think about how military veterans would have felt in the 60s if a hippie went into a VFW meeting and burned an American flag. It was a political statement, not a religious statement. They were waving palm branches. They were shouting, thinking we're going to have a political overthrow, and you Romans are going to get yours. And the Romans are waiting for this to squelch it. So it's very, very dangerous. Palm branches were not sold in Hallmark stores. The crowd starts singing, shouting, Hosanna. Again, most people think Hosanna is a word meaning praise 
or blessedness, a religious word. It was not. It was not primarily a religious word. It was a political term made of two Hebrew words, hosha, which means help, save, deliver, and na, hosanna, which means please, to give it a sense of urgency. So hosanna meant Messiah, help us, son of David, deliver us, give us our freedom, get rid of these Romans, make it happen, hosanna. Now, they're waving palm branches, they're going berserk shouting Hosanna, and the Romans are all over the place with stepped up security. You get the picture? This is not love, peace, and joy. We're about to have a riot here. This is a messianic demonstration gone out of control. The Romans are watching. They've got extra soldiers. This is why the Pharisees, the religious leaders, say, teacher talking to Jesus. Rebuke your disciples. Shut these people up. The Romans are all over us. They're watching us. They're going to come down on us in this city like a sledgehammer. So the crowds are singing and shouting, dancing and cheering for Jesus only because they think He's going to give them what they want. But if they knew what was really going to happen, they would change their tune, and that's exactly what did happen. It was Lamb Selection Sunday, and God was saying, Israel, I've chosen the Lamb for you. He's without blemish, without sin. He will sacrifice His life on the cross so that your sin and guilt can be washed away forever. That's not the kind of Messiah the people were looking for. Jesus makes His triumphant entry, and they're all thinking, boy, now it's going to happen. Now the Romans are going to get theirs. And that's why Jesus, what He does next in Luke 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, the crowd's going hysterical, waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and He saw the city and wept over it. Now, can you imagine what's going on in the people's minds? They see Messiah coming in on a donkey, and He starts crying. He said, if you had only known in this day what would bring you peace, but even now you don't see. See, this is not the lamb they wanted. It's Lamb Selection Sunday, but they don't want the lamb God's chosen for them. And much of our culture today, as we become more politically correct, doesn't either. You can have a baby Jesus. You can have a Ricky Bobby Jesus. You can have one as a wooden statue, but I don't want Messiah. I don't want the Son of God I don't want this. So what's happened? Little by little, we've removed manger scenes. We have holiday trees now. We, we say, happy holiday. I say, in your face, Merry Christmas. And it's a Christmas tree. Suck that up. Happy holiday, my foot. Don't you dare do that. It's Christ must. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I hope you'll say it. Christmas. I'm not going to let them steal what Jesus did. Keep Jesus in a manger, keep Him harmless, keep Him a baby, but don't let Him be God. Don't let Him be my Savior or my judge. So Jesus goes to the cross, and in that day, the cross is what happened to fail messiahs. The crucifixion was Rome's way of saying publicly, this guy's not the Messiah. Let his death be a lesson to anybody else who has this idea. That's why Jesus' followers are so devastated. It's not just that He died, but He died on a cross, 
And crucifixion was the signature of a failed Messiah. And that's also why the crowd becomes so hostile in just a couple of days. It's exactly what you would expect. They didn't understand that the real hero, the real deliverer, the real Superman, the real Messiah was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the whole world, and that Jesus chose to serve the world his whole life long, and he would end it as a servant by going to the cross. So no one but Jesus understood that the completion of his mission was to take all of our sin as an ultimate act of servanthood and sacrifice on a blood-stained cross. It looked like a failure. Now, to me, it's strange that Jesus sacrificed Himself for me, for you. His whole life long He did that, and then He does it in His death. Philippians 2 verse 8, Paul says, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He served us that much. So the Messiah complex is kind of puzzling. Every human being, every human being who's ever lived has suffered from these illusions of grandeur, personal self-sufficiency. Every human being who's ever lived rebels at being a servant. Every human being who's ever lived has suffered from the Messiah complex except one, and he was the Messiah. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.